So we're in John chapter 2. This is a... Steve just read the passage a few minutes ago. A little jealous. Um, Preaching rotation came out. And Pastor Einstein gets fun-loving party Jesus (laughs) at the wedding. Um, I don't get fun-loving party Jesus today. (laughs) But that's... That's going to be okay. This is how it goes sometimes. Um, still Jesus, which is good. But let's take a look. Just to give you a little bit of background on the setting here, what we're talking about. As Pastor Einstein preached last week, the wedding at Cana. Uh, yeah, after this, Jesus, after this, he, meaning Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Man, we could, we could unpack this, just this verse and be here for a long time and what they're talking about. After this means uh, yeah, immediately after this wedding in Cana, when Jesus does his first sign, his first, his first miracle, changing the water to wine. Right after this, immediately following, they head down to Capernaum. Uh, both places are located in Galilee, you know, a region of, of, uh, of Israel at that time, separate from Judea. Both are located in Galilee, but Cana was up in the hills. You know, if we talk about... Um, so my, my in-laws, they live uh, in Oakland. Uh, so if, if we're going to drive up there, where do we say we're going? Up north, right? Um, if you're headed to the south, we say you're going down south. They didn't do that. For them, up meant like up, and down meant down. Completely uh, didn't matter with the map at all. So Cana was up in the hills. Capernaum was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So they literally walked downhill to Capernaum. It's about 16 miles away. That's a long walk, but it's downhill. So they probably did it in a day. Uh, going back, it might have taken two days, but Capernaum later sort of became a home base uh, for, for a lot of Jesus' ministry. Okay, let's take a look here. He's talking about his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a, f- a few days. Look at this distinction between brothers and disciples. A lot of times when you read the brothers, the brethren, he's talking about the community of faith, the community of believers together. Uh, most of the time in the New Testament when it talks about brothers, the language there also includes, you know, it would include sisters. But here he's very specific. He's making a distinction, John, when he's writing between brothers and disciples he's talking about the biological brothers of jesus uh that would be um these aren't these aren't as jesus was obviously they're not children conceived of the holy spirit they're the natural children of of, uh, joseph and mary uh, jesus's younger brothers among them we know uh, we have james not the there's so many johns and so many jameses variety folks but anyway so so it's, it's it's not the it's not the brother of john that wrote john's gospel it's not the, uh, the son of thunder. It's not the son of Zebedee. It's not uh, Peter, James, and John that go up on the mountain with Jesus. It, it's not Peter and James and John that went, went with him into Gethsemane as he prayed. Uh, it's not the apostle James. It's the James who later in the book of Acts uh, led the church in Jerusalem. Uh, he was known as James the Just. He actually wrote the epistle in the back of your uh, New Testament, the epistle of James. That was written by Jesus' brother, James. Another brother was Jude uh, who wrote uh, in the back of uh, in the back of your New Testament, the, the, the letter of Jude. So Jesus had biological brothers and he had disciples. At this point, we don't know. We read a little bit later about uh, how some of his brothers were a bit doubtful of, of you know, okay, that's, my, that's Jesus. He's my, he's my older brother. Let's not get carried away. You know, he's, I don't know if he's the Messiah. I've heard him snore. You know what I mean? So, so they're a little bit hesitant at first. I, I don't know where they're at right now on their journey. Do they fully believe in who Jesus is? I don't know yet. But they're making the trip. Okay, Coming down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for just a few days. All, all three of the synoptic gospels, just, to, just by, by way of recap, synoptic, we're talking about the word means same view or same vision. They saw the same thing. The synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. right? And then John is a bit different because John uh, includes things that Matthew, Mark, and and Luke did not. Matthew, Mark, and Luke include things that John did not. Right here we actually see a calling of the 12. We see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's there's typically early in each book there's a passage where Jesus called to himself his disciples, the 12, and it lists them all off, right? You won't find that in John. So I don't know if he's called the 12 yet as they're making their way to Capernaum, uh, but we know he's got a few people, as we've read in the first first, uh, chapter of John, He's got Philip, Nathaniel, Andrew, Simon, Peter. He may have James and John with him. He might have all 12 with him, just based on what we've read so far. And they stayed there a few days. This is important to note, and this is going to help us out in the next section as we go on. Uh, They stayed there a few days. John has been meticulous about recording all the details related to time and location so far in in his gospel. Uh, We read uh, when when 
John the Baptist, again, lots of Johns. John the Baptist is baptizing at the Jordan. We read about how uh, when Jesus appeared, then the next day he appeared, then the next day uh, they go to, um, Jesus goes to, with Philip to meet Nathaniel. The next day, or a few days later, they go to Cana. A few days, then they go to Capernaum for a few days. So John's very specific. He's not vague. He takes the details very seriously. This is going to help us as we move beyond the setting, okay? To Jesus in the temple. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Okay. Passover of the Jews was at hand. This was the first Passover festival after the beginning of Jesus' ministry. His ministry just began. Passover is at hand. It's the first one. He makes the journey up to Jerusalem. Why? Because it's uphill to go to Jerusalem. There's no mention of his mother or brothers making the trip with him. This journey was much longer. They left Galilee on their, uh, and they headed into Judea. And the reason we say, we say up to Jerusalem because the last port of the, portion of the journey was uphill. Uh, several years ago here, Pastor Paul led us through a sermon series on the Songs of Ascent. Probably 10 years ago, maybe. Um, but these are the songs that pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem for festivals, notably Passover, would sing as they went, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. This is, this is the ascent that we're talking about. It doesn't matter if you came from the north, the south, or the east, or the west. When you went to Jerusalem, you went up. Hill. Okay, Jesus reaches the temple and he sees people selling animals and changing money. Why does this sound familiar? We've heard this story, right? Um, I preached Palm Sunday and I talked about it. And I, know you, I know you guys remember everything about that message. But just in case, some of you may have forgotten, uh, let's just look at some of the highlights anyways. All three of these synoptic gospels, they record Jesus clearing the temple. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all talk about it as well. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have an account of Jesus clearing the temple but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it occurs in what's most likely the third Passover of Jesus' ministry, right before he's crucified. After the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, when he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a colt, and he, they all say he goes to the temple, sees what's happening, and then he goes back to Bethany. The next day, he comes back with one thing on his mind, clearing out the temple. Looks very similar, sounds very similar to what we read today. But all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they put it at the end of Jesus' ministry. So there's three possibilities here. One possibility is that John confused the dates of some events when he wrote his gospel. But as we talked about, John is clear. The next day this happened. Three days later this happened. The day after that this happened. They stayed there a few days when the Passover was at hand. Even a couple chapters after what we're reading today, we read about all of these things happened before John the Baptist was put in prison. So John's clear, not vague at all. He's very clear, this is when it happened. We can't say he was confused about the dates of some events when he wrote his gospel. What John's writing about today happened at the first Passover of Jesus' ministry in the early days of, of his work. Second possibility is the writer of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, they were all mistaken. Same thing there, though. They're very clear. Triumphal entry happens. He goes back to Beth They even say the town. He goes back to Bethany, right, staying with, at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Then he comes back again and sees the next morning. He even talks about the fig tree that he encounters on the way. So they're very specific. All three of those are not going to be mistaken. So we're really left with one conclusion, is that Jesus cleared the temple twice on two separate Passovers. We read about a third Passover that likely happened in between. It comes a little bit later in John. We read about, an, and later in, also in the, in the Gospel of John, uh, another festival that Jesus attended. We, it doesn't say it's Passover. It just says another festival Possibly Passover, possibly not. It does mention another Passover that Jesus was not in Jerusalem for. So we know that his ministry on earth, after it began, there were at least three Passovers in there. Maybe four. Can't say for sure. But we know that the first and the last included this temple clearing in Jerusalem that looked so much like each other. Okay. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. A few questions about this that we need to we need, to get, we need to get clear on. Number one, why were they selling animals in the temple courts? Now, the temple in Jerusalem was laid out. There were all lots of different, um, uh, I don't know, 
lots of different areas where, where like, if you got a, so, okay, you have a ticket to the concert, that's good, good for you, but, like, your, your ticket to the ball game, but your ticket's for the upper deck, and the usher's not going to let you into the lower deck if you, he's like, this is an upper deck ticket, you got to go up there, and some people actually have a, a pass they can get on the field, um, and some people have like the you know their press or something like that. They can get they can go back to the clubhouses and interview the players. Dream job, but they get to do that. So it's kind of the same in the temple. There's a court uh, that anybody from anywhere can go into. Um, there's a court that only men can go into. As you narrow your as it narrows its focus, there's a court and the court of Gentiles, uh, God fearing non Jews. They're not Jews. They don't belong to one of the tribes of Israel. Uh, their parents were possibly also God-fearing non-Jews, but somewhere along the way, they've heard the story uh, about this God who created heavens and earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who brought these people out of the land of Egypt, the God who brought these people out of captivity. And they're God-fears, they're non-Jews. They're allowed to go into a section of the temple. As you make your way closer, there's some that's reserved only for Jewish males, there's some that's reserved only for priests, and then there's that Holy of Holies in the middle that's only allowed the only person allowed to go is the high priest one day a year, right? So it gets more and more uh, exclusive as you, as you continue in. What's happening here is probably happening in the court of the Gentiles. Let's take a look at, let's take a look, look at question number one. So why were they selling animals in the temple courts? All right. It's Passover. We all know that at Passover, uh, if you remember the story from the book of Exodus, God tells them to take a, a spotless lamb, uh, to kill it, spread the blood on the doorpost. You're going to roast the lamb. You're going to eat it. So we understand why there would be sheep and lambs there. The Old Testament, as it explains, other burnt offerings and sin offerings that are to be associated with Passover, God gives clear instructions about uh, oxen, bulls that are be, sa- be sacrificed as burnt offerings. Uh, pigeons were the offering typically of poor people. When Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple as a baby, they bring the two doves, the two pigeons. This is the common uh, offering of, of, um, of the poor uh, to, to make their sacrifice to God. So that's why all these other animals are there. Selling him near the temple, but not inside, had been common practice. So you're, you're on your way up to Jerusalem, right? You're headed uphill. The last, the last part before the last journey is the Kidron Valley, which is where the Mount of Olives is. It's the edge of that valley is where we see the Garden of Gethsemane. And that was a pretty common place for years where these animals were sold. Uh, sold just right outside the city walls. It, it was really convenient to weary pilgrims. You're coming from... Galilee. Maybe you're one of these God-fearing non-Jews, and you're coming from somewhere across the Jordan River. You're coming from Lebanon. You're coming from uh, maybe Egypt, even. You know, you're making a long journey, a long time to get there. You might only get to do Passover. You, can, you can't do it every year. It's just too far. So you're finally making your way there as a weary pilgrim. Think about how much harder it would be to go worship the Lord if you had to bring your oxen with you. That'd be pretty hard, right? Like you're on your donkey, maybe if you got a donkey. If not, you're on foot. And so you're bringing along all these animals with you. It was a convenience. When they got there, they could buy what they needed. Don't worry about bringing all the stuff. Just bring your money, and then we'll, we'll sell you what you need when you get there. Okay? So it's a convenience. All right? Why were they exchanging money? The temple tax had to be paid in a local currency. If you were from somewhere else, you had a different kind of coin. Even if you were within Israel, you may have had a different kind of coin. It wasn't quite standardized like our money is now. The temple tax had to be paid in, in local currency. The preferred currency was a Tyrian coin. Uh, its value was such that one coin would cover the tax for two adult male Jews. Matthew seventeen twenty seven. Uh, I didn't realize the whole point behind this until this week, but it's the, it's, the, uh, it's the scene when people are coming and they're questioning Jesus and they're questioning his followers and say, why doesn't your master pay the temple tax? Trying to trap him, right? Get Jesus caught in a tricky question. Jesus basically responds with, the temple's my house. Why would I need to pay the taxes when I go to my own place? And then he says, but, just to satisfy you people, they're by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He tells Peter, Peter, you've got to catch him fish. Go catch a fish. First one you find, open its mouth. There'll be a coin in there. Take it out, and you pay the taxes for you and me. Okay? So one coin would typically cover the taxes for two adult male Jews. Again, when it was done near the temple but not inside, it was a great convenience to travelers. It's like, do I, have I got to get... Do I have to get the right kind of money before I go? No, just bring what you got. When you get there, we'll sort it all out, okay? What was so wrong with all this? It's convenient. It helps people. It helps travelers. It's good that they're there. It takes a lot of the burden off. You can actually focus on, as you're going up, singing, I mean, try, you know, you're, you're singing uh, 
I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, O maker of heaven, creator of the earth, as you're going up. As you're going up and you're singing the song of the sins, today, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And you're, dra- and you're dragging oxen with you. That's going to be hard, right? But so they just go and just be ready. Just bring, bring your pocketbook. When you get there, we'll sort it all out. They can prepare their hearts for worship. They can start to think about the Lord, think about the words that they're singing as they go up. It's convenient. What's wrong with that? Also, in this passage, selling those animals or exchanging the money, nobody is getting rebuked for making a profit. Jesus doesn't say, you're ripping people off. He's not saying that here. I mean, it's, it's okay. If, I mean, if you're one of the, the like, livestock people, the herdsman who brings them all in to sell to people, it's okay. You should be able to earn a little bit of a living from that. Nothing wrong with that. If you are one of the people who keeps track of all the currency exchange rates and the coins and everything, like, you, should be able to, you should be able to make a living from that. There's nothing wrong with that. They're not being chastised. They're not being rebuked in this particular telling for making a profit off people. In fact, let's compare. In today's, verse 17, Jesus tells them, don't make my father's house a house of trade. In verse 17, but let's compare it. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the next time he clears the temple, right before his crucifixion, right after the triumphal entry, he says, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Okay, so something's happened. In those two years, their wickedness, their greed has increased. And you get the sense that when he tells them later, a lot of it's about that greed, ripping people off. But that's not the, he doesn't directly say, you know, I have a problem with you guys making money. He's not saying that. They're providing a service that's convenient for people. What's wrong with it is the where. Where is it happening? It's happening in the court of Gentiles. This is as close as God-fearing non-Jews could get. They were forbidden to go any further. The laws and restrictions of the day said that this is how far you can come and you can't cross it or you're going to face big trouble. And right there, as close as they could get to hear the singing, to hear the scripture being read, to worship the Lord, to make their own offering, the sounds and the smells of animals. That's all they had. I mean, they want to worship the Lord, but they've got to watch where they step. That's the problem. These people who have been waiting for Messiah to come for centuries, they missed him. This should be, this is, I mean, John the Baptist proclaimed, hey, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one we've been waiting for. He proves it. He displays his own glory, as we learned last week in Cana, by turning the water into wine. His disciples believed him. And now he's headed to the temple at Passover. This should be one of the, aside from his death and resurrection, This should be the biggest thing that ever happened. Here is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one they've waited for for centuries, and he's on the scene, and he's not off in some desert or near the river or in some small town way up in Galilee by a lake. He's not up in the mountains turning water into wine. He's here, and he's in the temple. This is it. We've been waiting for this. Nobody noticed. Couldn't get past the animals. It was a distraction. That's what was wrong with it. So Jesus, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. Pause right there. When he says drove them all out of the temple, he mentions sheep and oxen separately. Makes me think he might be using the whip to chase the people out. Doesn't say he hit them with the whip, just says he made one. So we can't assume what he did, but... Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So this rebuke that Jesus gives here, let's take a look at it briefly. It's not done hastily. It's deliberate. How long did it take him to braid a whip? Right? A couple, there's a couple, a couple scenes in the New Testament where I really want to know what was going through Jesus' mind. One is with the, the woman who's accused of adultery, and uh, Jesus is there. They bring him out and say, we caught this woman, what should we do? They didn't bring the man who also committed adultery, just the woman. They said, what should we do? Our law says she has to be stoned. And Jesus just sits down and starts writing on the ground. They have no, no idea what he wrote. It's going to be one of my first five questions. <laughs> what were you writing? 
here too. What were you thinking about when you were making that whip? What was going through your mind? Most likely, the word, the word, uh, the Hebrew word here for, or excuse me, the Greek word that they're talking about here when they talk about uh, he he makes it out of uh, makes the whip out of cords. It's it's uh, um, organic material, uh, probably from um, almost like a rushes, you know, like a long leaf, long leafy thing, like a uh, um, almost like you'd weave a basket out of. Most likely, it was what was used to put on the ground where all the animals were. So you know, when they did their business, it, the leaves would kind of soak it up, right? That's, fuel to the fire. That's what Jesus is making this whip out of as he's sitting there. It's visible. It's easily noticed. This rebuke is not a silent rebuke. It's not a hidden rebuke at all. It wasn't big enough that the Roman soldiers who were stationed at the, at the corner of the Temple Mount, it wasn't violent. It wasn't so bad that those Roman soldiers had to rush in. But it was big enough that right away the Jewish leaders knew what was going on. And they came right away, as we'll see. It was visible. It's easily noticed. But here's what stands out the most from this rebuke is it's compassionate. Really? Compassionate? With the the whip and the cords and the chasing? Yeah, it's compassionate. Let's look at how it's compassionate. He chases out the sheep and the oxen. Flips over the tables of the money changers and he pours out the coins and he smashes the cages of pigeons and the birds all fly away. Oh wait, that's not what happens. He chases out the sheep and the oxen He flips over the tables of the money changers. He pours out the coins, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. The livestock, this is easy. The people who handle them, they can be found. They can be brought back. They can be gathered up again. Let's gather the sheep back. Let's gather the oxen back. Let's go sell them where we're supposed to. Right? That's easy enough. The coins... Flip, pouring them out, flipping the tables. Well, the money changers can pick up the coins. They can put them in their bag and they can take them outside and do their business where they're supposed to. But the pigeons, if he scatters the pigeons to the wind, they're gone. But Jesus wants nothing to be lost. So he says, take them away. Do something with them. Jesus was trying to realign their hearts towards true worship. He wasn't trying to ruin anybody's financial livelihood. In his zeal, zeal for your house will consume me. In his zeal, he's not heartless. He doesn't, he doesn't lose control. His aim and rebuke is always to correct and restore, never to destroy. He doesn't want to lay these people low. He wants to teach them about true worship. The Lord, we read in Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. It's a clear rebuke, but it's a kind rebuke. Nobody's getting ruined over this. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Clearing the temple, like I said, certainly drew the attention of Jewish leaders in the temple. They came right away. They had to investigate. This is one that, yep, I'm going to have to investigate this one. Can't let this one go. Notice what they don't say. They don't say, why'd you do that? Why, why you, what gives? Why in the world would you need to do anything like that? That's not their first question. I have to think that some of them might be thinking, hey, it's probably good you did that. You're getting a little out of hand. We weren't going to do it, but I'm glad you did. That's not their first question. Their first question instead is, show us a sign to prove your authority to do that. They were looking for a sign to show that Jesus was a prophet. He could prove himself to them. This was probably standard operating procedure. Anytime anybody did anything like that, they probably went to him and said, show us a sign or else we're going to have problems. Show us that you're a prophet. Can you prove it? They want a sign from Jesus. Maybe they heard, hey, we heard about what you did with the uh, water and the wine thing. Show us one. See if you can confirm it. Can you do it again? 
So what was the role of a prophet? Just a little recap. We all remember this, just in case we forgot. The role of a prophet is to bring the word of the Lord to the people, right? The job of the priest was to bring the people before God. The role of a prophet was to bring the word of the Lord to the people. So did Jesus bring the word of the Lord? No. Jesus himself was the word. He didn't bring a message from the Lord. He was the Lord. He was the word. So he's greater than a prophet. So Jesus, who was greater than a prophet, you want a, you want a sign? He says, I'm going to tell you about a sign that's even greater than a sign that any prophet could give you. This is what he tells him. Here's the sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. This is the sign, his resurrection, by which Jesus will prove that he is more than a prophet, that he's Messiah, he's the Christ, he's the Son of God. Read that he was... Uh, He wasn't speaking about the temple itself. He was speaking about his body. Destroy it. In three days, I will raise it up. Jesus says later in John, I have the authority to lay down my own life, and I have the authority to take it up again. He's previewing that here. I'll raise myself up. This is the sign. This is the sign by which Jesus will prove to all. He's more than a prophet, more than a teacher, more than a healer. He's the Messiah. He is the Son of God. This was completely lost on the Jews. As soon as he said it, they started talking about construction. Uh, so we know um, the temple, the first temple was built in the days of Solomon, known as Solomon's Temple. It took a long time to build it. It was built, people worshipped there. Later, as the, uh, throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament, a lot of worship was forgotten, a lot of it was done away with. Sometimes the temple fell into disrepair. Sometimes idols were worshipped in the temple, depending on who the king was and who the priests were. Occasionally, revival would break out, and, uh, and true worship of the Lord would be restored. It would last for several years, and then uh, you know, that good king died, or it often says he ended up being wicked. And then um, you know, it was kind of a back-and-forth history. Well, that all culminates with uh, the people being taken away by the Babylonians into captivity, and they destroyed what was left of Solomon's temple. They spend some time in captivity. Then the Lord turns the heart of Cyrus the king, and they are allowed to return back to Jerusalem. They find everything completely in disrepair. This is in the, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then uh, the leader who takes one of the very first groups back, Zerubbabel, um, by the way, not on any list of top 100 names today. Zerubbabel is an interesting name. Um, so Zerubbabel begins construction of the temple way before 46 years. This is, this is a few hundred years before what we're talking about today. So when the Jews talk about this 46 years, what they're talking about is what King Herod has done to remodel, to improve, to uh, make updates to the temple. And he'd been doing that. The family of Herod had been doing that for 46 years, which is why in Jesus' day it was commonly known as Herod's temple. The first temple was known as Solomon's temple. This one's known as Herod's temple, built on the same spot. But this whole thing about destroy it and on three days I'll raise it, completely lost on the Jews. Interesting, interesting though, because there's two different times where he clears the temple. This, this exchange, when we read about it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the week of his crucifixion, this exchange is not in there at all. But it's brought up as evidence at his trial. So somebody remembered from two years before. I heard him say one time that uh, if he would destroy it, and then he could build it back up in three days. That's what they bring against him as evidence. But he says it here, two years prior. Completely lost on the Jews. Even, even that two years later, they hadn't quite figured out what he was talking about. It's not lost on the disciples, though, at least not in the long run. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It wasn't totally lost on the disciples. This was a sign of a Messiah, not a sign of a prophet. This was the sign of the Son of God. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Look at this right here. We ended last week, Pastor Einstein preaching about uh, the wedding at Cana, when he turned water into wine, his first sign, that, uh, Scripture tells us that that is how Jesus manifested his glory. It's how he made, he revealed his glory to the people. He made it manifest, let it be known that he has this authority, that he has this, uh, through these signs, it points to his glory. And we read uh, back in verse 11, the very last verse of last week's passage, that the disciples saw the sign and they believed. Right? We'll get to this in just a minute. But here we read about how they believed the Scripture after his resurrection. They believed the scripture and they believed the word that Jesus had spoken. This was true belief. 
beyond a belief in signs. It's, I'm not just believing in what Jesus can do. I'm believing in what Jesus says. We're going to talk about how that's a difference now. This is true belief. Belief is a word that has great significance in John's gospel. As we've talked about, there are several words that keep coming back up. The world, light, life, belief is one of them. In fact, the key, verse, key verses for the book, as Pastor Paul started us out when we started this whole journey through the gospel of John, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. In other words, we've, I've written down records of these signs that he did, the ones I'm writing about, the ones I'm telling you about, the signs he performed. These are written, why? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Okay? So this word belief, great significance. How does this belief come according to John? It comes as a result of seeing Jesus do signs that point to who he is as a Messiah. Okay? Now, when Jesus was in, uh, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He didn't trust himself because he knew all people. That's intimidating. Jesus performed his first sign at the wedding in Cana. He must have performed other signs. Again, back to this John chapter 20 thing. Lots of other things that happen. John goes on to say in chapter 20, uh, if I would have written everything down, the whole world couldn't contain the book. So we know there's lots of things that happen that we don't directly read about. And this is what he's talking about. Uh, many believed in his name in verse 23 when they saw the signs that he was doing. So we know Jesus must have been doing signs in Jerusalem. Signs that pointed to himself as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the Son of God, to bring himself glory. Many people were believing in Jesus' name, we just read, when they saw the signs that he was doing. This is wonderful. This is wonderful that people are believing in Jesus because of these signs. John recorded a number of signs so that we might believe, as we just talked about. Signs were a way that Jesus displayed his glory. The disciples believed when they saw the sign at the wedding in Cana. This is wonderful. Many people were drawn to him because of these signs. Next week, Nicodemus, spoiler alert, because of the signs that Jesus was doing in Jerusalem. That's why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. This is wonderful. It's wonderful that people believe in Jesus because he does signs. It's also worrisome that people believe in Jesus when he does the signs because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that many people would follow as long as the signs were flowing like water, but as soon as they dried up, people would leave. When Jesus stops performing, the crowds would stop following. He knew that. It's a good story we'll get to. I don't know. The rate we're going, it could be a while. Um, <laughs> cold weather. Uh, John chapter 6. This is a follow-up to the feeding of the 5,000. happens right after the feeding of 5,000, just a short time later, and even in the same place. There's a crowd gathered again. They're there, and Jesus is there, and they're saying to Jesus, Hey, um... I don't really know how to say this, Jesus, but the last time you were here and there was a crowd, there was something about free food. Could we count on that again or, or what? And Jesus tells him, you're seeking me not because you saw signs that pointed to his glory as the Messiah, but because you ate the loaves, right? They didn't see the sign of the feeding of 5,000 as pointing to Jesus, who he goes on to say in chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. They're not... They're not amazed by this sign because it points to Jesus, the Messiah, the bread of life. They're still following Jesus because I heard there might be food involved. And then when Jesus tells them, uh, they ask him, yeah, in chapter 6, so they, so they ask him, so what sign, what work are you going to do to prove to us who you are? Because, you know, uh, our fathers in the wilderness received manna from heaven. That's what they say. And Jesus says, uh, just so you know, Moses didn't give that manna. My father in heaven gave that manna. And me, I'm the bread of life. And if you eat this bread, you'll never go hungry again. And if you drink the water that I provide, you will never go thirsty again. And it says that they grumbled when he said, oh, you're the bread? They just didn't know what it meant. They wanted their bellies full. They weren't interested in understanding what the sign meant. Okay? These signs were displays of the glory of Jesus, the confirmation that he indeed was the Christ. But people were only seeing the physical miracle and not the sign that pointed to Jesus as the Christ. They were the stony soil. I know we all know this, but just by way of recap, the parable of the sower. Uh, sowers walking down the way. 
And Jesus tells this parable, and he's explaining it. And so he says that he's sowing seed. Nothing wrong with the seed. The seed is the word of God. The seed is 100% pure and perfect. Not a thing wrong with it. He's sowing the word of God. And he sows some by the wayside, side of the road. It's so hard, Jesus compares it to our hearts that are hard and our ears that are closed to receiving his truth, that it doesn't even sink in at all. As the sower sows it on the wayside, birds come along and take it. In the same way, when our hearts are hard and we receive God's truth, uh, Satan comes and takes it away from us before it can even start to sink in the ground. And then he says he continued on, and some seed fell along the stony path, and it quickly sprouted up. But when the heat of the day came, because the ground was stony, it didn't get a chance to dig in roots, and so it withered. And Jesus said it's the same thing. Many of you believe when you see signs, and your faith uh, blossoms quickly, but it's not deeply rooted. And when hard times come, you wither. Just because we're already here, the next two kinds is they toss it in the, 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 the ground with thorns. By the way, the sower doesn't know if there's stones under there. The sower doesn't know that there's been thorns planted there. And the sower doesn't know what the good ground is. He's just throwing out the word of God. So it lands in this uh, soil that already has these seeds for thorns, and it grows up, but then the thorns choke it out. And Jesus says, those are people who believe, and they believe for a while, and then the cares of life choke them out. They get distracted and preoccupied with their needs instead of trusting me to provide for them. And finally, the last one lands in good soil. Now, only one-fourth of the seed lands in good soil and grows, so we would think, okay, to break even, you need four times the yield, right? If only one-fourth of it's going to grow, we need four times the yield we thought we would get. But Jesus says that bore, it bore fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold, right? So what Jesus is saying right here, lots of people, uh, when they see the signs, but they don't let the sign point them to the Savior, and they just expect the miracle to happen, it's this stony ground. And when the hard times come, when the signs stop, when you hit a cold streak, when this month was a whole lot harder than last month, your faith stops. Signs could and still can lay a foundation for true and lasting belief. We, this, this is, we, we, have to, we have to understand signs still happen, and they can still lay a good foundation for true and lasting belief. But what else is needed? How can we mature from being sign-dependent Stony soil to being the good soil, soil has true belief in Jesus. Let's look at a couple of examples of people who did this well. We can learn from them. First of all, the disciples. We're talking about, we see this last week. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, turning the water into wine. By doing so, he manifested, he made known, he revealed, he made it evident, his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Today's passage when therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. In 11 verses, we're reading about the disciples who in that current moment, after coming from Cana, they believed because of the signs. But later, after the resurrection, when they had the, the help of the Holy Spirit to understand what Jesus taught them, we read that the Holy Spirit brought everything back to mind. Then they believed not just the sign that he gave, but they believed the scripture, and they believed the word that Jesus had spoken. They didn't just believe in Jesus for what he could do. They believed in what he said. Second one is really good. People in the Samaritan town from John 4. We're going to get here again in a few weeks. This is a well-known story. Jesus and his disciples, they're kind of shortcutting through. They're going through Samaria. Uh, it's the middle of the day. Jesus meets a woman at the well. Uh, would, I'm not going to steal a whole lot of thunder from the story, but uh, Jesus... Uh, offers the woman, um, he said, if you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you living water that will never run dry. And then he tells her, go find your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And she's like, I knew that. He said, in truth, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. So obviously she's shocked. But as we read, Jesus knew it was in the hearts of men. So she goes back to the people in the town. You guys, this guy over here at the well, you're not going to believe what he knew about me. How did he know that? Do any of you know him? Nope. Then how did he know it? This is a sign that Jesus performed. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. The woman told all the townspeople, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. But read what happens. Many more believed because of more signs that he did. No, they believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, the townspeople said to the woman, 
It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we've heard it for ourselves now. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. These are Samaritans. These are the half-breed Jews. It's like the non-Jews don't like them because they're half-Jews. The Jews don't like them because they're half-Gentile. Nobody likes the Samaritans. And here they are, the first people to say, uh, this is the Savior of the world we've got here. And they knew that not because of a sign. The sign got it started, laid the foundation. But then they believed what he said. Has to be followed up with belief in Scripture, the words and message of the living word. Believing not merely what God can do, but also what he says. Even when the signs stop and things don't go in our favor, our faith remains when we do that. It's one of my favorite passages from Habakkuk chapter 3. When we have this kind of faith, not in, we see what God can do. We see the power of Jesus. We see his authority. And we wonder and we marvel But then when we go beyond and we begin to believe his word and see him for who he really is, the prophet Habakkuk writes, though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, despite all those bad things, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. We're going to close today with what Jesus wants from us these things in mind. There are three ways that Jesus wants to sharpen and refine us. First is how we approach him. He wants to refine, sharpen, correct, train. The same way you'd like, you train a vine to go up a trellis. You, know, you make all the little ties and it follows and the plant grows exactly where you want it to. This is what he wants to do. Is how he wants to train us in the way we approach him. It wasn't the details of daily life. It wasn't the buying and selling in this case, that prompted Jesus' rebuke in the temple. It wasn't daily life. It was the fact that daily life had overtaken worship. The whole reason for being at the temple at the Passover was to worship the Lord as he commanded. It was a special high holy feast where they remembered how he delivered them out of the land of Egypt, how he struck down the firstborn of their oppressors and their captives, and how they left for the promised land. That's what this was all for. But they missed it because they got too tied down with the animals. That's not what he wants from us. As we approach him, we have to approach him intentionally. Make space. Make time. Make quiet. If his body was the temple, and we read later that even our bodies are temples unto the Lord, then everywhere we go is holy ground. We don't always live that way. We don't always live like we're on holy ground. We often forget that we're on holy ground. We forget that this is the Christ. This is the Son of God. And he invites us to approach, to be near to him. First way that Jesus wants to sharpen and refine us. Second way is he wants to sharpen and refine how we receive his correction and discipline. We have to recognize that any rebuke from the Lord, it's not designed to ruin us. He's not heartless. We're his children, we're the sheep of his pasture. He's not going to destroy us. He wants to correct and restore. I've known Pastor Paul, for about 15 years now, and the the phrase started with him, I've never heard anybody else say it, but in times when we feel the rebuke of the Lord, we call it the heavy hand of God. The heavy hand of God is on me. I feel like the Lord is taking me through a season of uh, rebuking me, correcting me, training me, pruning me, as we said earlier. We feel like our whole community is in a season of pruning. And we sense this heavy hand of God on us. But we have to see it the right way. We feel this heavy hand of God pressing on us. And we think, Lord, why are you pushing so hard? I can't breathe. Why are, lighten up. But we only see the one hand. We only see the one heavy hand. What we don't realize is underneath it, his other hand is doing open heart surgery. 
It's correcting what needs to be corrected. It's fixing what needs to be fixed. It's aligning what needs to be aligned within us. And in those moments, in those seasons, that's when we're most vulnerable. That's when Satan would most like to shoot an arrow while we're opened up. The Lord has us open, doing surgery, making the fixes he needs to fix. And that's when we're vulnerable to Satan's attack. But God takes his other big, strong hand and he puts it there to shield and to guard and to watch over. So what we feel is pressure and we can't handle this. It's saving our lives. It's how we have to receive it. Always for our good and for his glory. I talked about this you know, a few weeks ago. When we read narrative in Scripture, when we read a parable uh, about the, uh, the prodigal son, right? there's the father who sees him coming, there's the younger brother who squanders everything, there's the older brother who's bitter about it all. The point of a parable is Jesus taught these so that we might see ourselves in the story. right? When it's a parable, yes, look for yourself in the story. When it's a, a story of something that actually happened, don't look for yourself in the story because you're not in it. right? You're not David. David was David, and he fought Goliath. You didn't fight Goliath. David did that. He already did it. You don't have to do it. Don't worry about it. Goliath is dead. You're not, you're not, you're not David. But if you want to look for yourself in this story today, clearly you're not Jesus. I'm not either. You're not one of the disciples. You're not one of the money changers. You're not one of the Jews who come. If you need to find yourself in today's story, you're a pigeon. We are rats with wings. But look at the kind way our Savior handles us. He doesn't want us to be scattered, preyed upon. He wants us to be kept safe, to be accounted for, until the time comes when we might be offered on the altar of sacrifice to our God. This is how we've got to receive his correction, his discipline, always for our good. The third way he wants to sharpen and refine us by how we believe in him. We know enough to stay away from the prosperity gospel. We know that. We know, you know, the people we see on TV, you know, oh, I need, you know, and the private jet's a little small, going to need a bigger one. This one's, well, now I might need two private jets because you never know one might be refueling when I need to take off again. These are the prosperity people. If you... You know, name it and claim it. Confess it and possess it. We know enough to stay away from that. We've been trained. We're never going to let up and, and warning everybody to stay away. But we know enough to stay away from that stuff. But down deep, let's be honest. We're not full-blown prosperity gospel, but I think sometimes we do believe in God just a little bit more when things are going well. When you're hitting all the brakes, when... Oh, this, hey, my, my kid, the, the letter came. He gets to go to the magnet school. I didn't think it was going to happen. Hey, but he got in. Hey, so they needed, to, they needed to give somebody a promotion at work. This guy. So when things are going well, it's a little bit easier to believe. But whether we admit it or not, we fall prey to this. Is our faith dependent on who he is? Or is it dependent on what he does for us? What about when the news is, uh, as I have experienced in the last several months, dear Mr. Lee, we would like to thank you for considering employment with us. We thank you for the time it took you to fill out the application. However, we've decided that other candidates best meet the needs of this position. We wish you all the best in future employment searches. Um, yeah, I, I know what actors in Hollywood go through. I am used to rejection by now. Um, so I ask myself, do I believe him a little bit less because it's gone bad? When you get the call from the doctor, hey, everything's clear. Your blood test came out fine. Or better come back in. You might need to biopsy something. Does that change how we're going to believe in him? Does that change our level of commitment to him? Does that change who he is? Never. He's unchanging. Everything he does is always for his glory and for our good. 
Not one square inch of this universe, which Seth said this, I don't know how many times, not one square inch of this universe is outside of the sovereign control of God. We are finite human beings. If we could somehow see things from God's perspective, if we could see everything the way that he sees it perfectly, then every single thing that has happened in your life, every single thing that has happened in your life is something you would have chosen for yourself if you can see it the way he sees it. We have to change the way we believe in him. Just about to wrap up. Let's go back to this time when they were, I mentioned they were taken away into Babylonian captivity. This is a familiar story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Friends of Daniel, servants of King Nebuchadnezzar. They were picked out for service. Smart young men. There to serve the king. The king liked them. But the king said, from now on everybody's going to have to bow down and worship this golden statue of me. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told the king, I'm sorry, we just can't do that. And the king liked these guys. He's like, look, all you, you don't really have to mean it. You just got to do it. But if you don't do it, there's going to be consequences. We're going to throw you in the fiery furnace. Look at what they say. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he'll deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, even if he doesn't, you should know, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you've set up. Our community has been through a lot of things. There might not be a light at the end of the tunnel. This might just be the beginning. It might get worse. The place we're planning to meet looks good. Things change. Some of us who feel pretty good, we're on the mend. We might get worse. But he's sovereign. We don't love him for what he can do. We don't believe in him for what he can do. We believe his words. We believe the things that he says about himself. We have hope. When we do this, we have hope. What's our hope? I love it. John starts the ministry of Jesus with a wedding feast and with proper worship in the temple. And our hope, this faith, this belief that we have, when it becomes reality, it becomes reality the exact same way. When we enter the blessed hope to come, a wedding feast. And we worship him forever, night and day in the temple of the Lord. We have hope. That's the best thing we've got. Not at what he can do, but what he says about himself. He is the Christ, the Son of God. Not useful for our purposes, but we're useful for his. That's what he wants from us. Let's pray.